We're going to look at the subject of worship, um, coming to the end of our series. And um, as we started, I was just pondering the word worship, and I don't know what comes into your mind when you, you hear the word worship. It might be that you imagine kind of, a, I don't know, people bowing down to stone idols or statues. It might be that your mind goes to um, religious communities gathering together to kind of prostrate themselves or to, to lie down and, and worship. It might be that your mind, depending on whether you're here for the first time, whether you have familiarity with Christianity, it might go to groups of Christians sitting around a campfire with a guitar with a rainbow strap singing Kumbaya. <laughs> Don't really know why that is still the picture of what Christians do, but anyway. Um, or it could go to Sir Cliff Richard, obviously. It might go to him as well. Um, but... Um, I thought, by starting, we would look at some truly horrendous examples of Christian album covers, um, some Christian worship album covers, which, thankfully, I don't think they're available anymore. Um, So I was just trawling the internet, as you do, which is not always a wise thing, and here are some that I found. So, first one, The Rappin' Reverend. I ain't into that. I quite like that one, actually. Next one, Bill and Sue Present Jesus. I mean, that must be an amazing, amazing disc there. Next one, slightly unnerving. God's chosen puppet. I don't know whether she's kind of got Satan by the, in a headlock or is kind of possessed herself. It's, it looks slightly strange. I'm sure it's well-intentioned. The next one, Hotline to Heaven by Jerry Irby. I actually heard a bit of that on, um, on YouTube, and there's this kind of telephone ringing at the start, and he's talking to God, and God's having a conversation with him. It's a little bit cheesy. Next one, a cautionary note, Satan is Real by the Louvin Brothers. Uh, I hear that's actually a very good disc. Okay, this is probably the most macabre one I've found. This is little Richard Miller, born without arms and legs, um, who obviously leads worship on that piano. And um, there's him and his tour bus with Jesus in the background. It's a slightly slightly unnerving album. And lastly, one, um, oh no, Striper. Who remembers Striper? Paul McGrath definitely would. It's kind of a sort of 80s, 90s Christian heavy metal band. I'm sure they're very well-intentioned, bringing the gospel to hard rockers. And the last album, I've got Joe Perrett to thank for this one. It's my personal favourite, Jesus Use Me by the Faith Tones. I'm hoping that hair is real. It's- Looks amazing. Actually, those la- the, the ladies kind of they sing in these amazing three-part harmonies while playing the Hammond organ. So maybe Tony, do you have this one in your collection? No. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so maybe your mind goes to cringy Christian music when you think about worship. Well, this morning we're going to unpack what the subject of worship involves, and we're going to find out that it's actually wider than just music and song. But before we start, um, having looked at some horrendous examples of Christian albums, I want to invite John Pickett up, who is going to plug a couple of albums that he is listening to currently as good examples of Christian music. So let's give John a round of applause. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Um, yeah, so I listen to quite a lot of Christian music. The word, the term Christian music, I suppose, is a little bit terrifying, um, as Jim has quite ably shown us with those albums. Um, there's a couple of albums that have um, really blessed me this year. We've got Phil Wickham's Children of God um, and uh, New Day Live 2016, which is called Heartbeat. Um, relatively self-explanatory. This is a live worship album, so it captures the live recordings from New Day. Our youth group, wonderful youth group, go to New Day every year. So if you're interested in what goes on there, I would recommend this album wholeheartedly. Um, And I think also it captures the fact that live worship isn't just 
like a concert. It's not like just going to, going to Wembley to see a band play. It captures the sense of God's presence mm. in the worship as well, which is, I think, really um, a, a wonderful thing. So I'd recommend that one. Children of God, Phil Wickham. Phil Wickham's one of my favorite Christian artists, American guy, an amazing voice, brilliant songwriter. Um, <clears throat> it's a studio album, so if you listen to uh, the radio, and I don't mean Christian radio, I mean secular, normal radio, um, and you like what you hear there, I would recommend this as well. He's sort of put the guitar down, picked up the keyboard, and um, yeah, it's a really good album. It's the sort of album that will grow on you, so if you buy it and you think after, a, I don't know, a couple of weeks, I don't like it, give it a bit more time. We have some copies, not many copies of this available today, £8 on CD. You can obviously go away and download it if that's your thing. Um, they're at the front desk. When they're gone, they're gone. Um, there will be some more CDs for sale next week, um, so you can always buy them for a aunt or an uncle or something. So thank you. Brilliant. Thanks, Jim. Thank you, John. Thank you very much. Okay, so before we start, let's just pray. Let's invite the Holy Spirit to come speak to us as we study his word this morning. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you are the living God. Lord, we thank you that you call us to worship in spirit and in truth. And Lord, this morning we just want to say to you, we are open and available to your spirit's touch this morning. Lord, come and open our minds, open our hearts, help us to receive the word of God this morning. Help us to learn what it means to worship you in all your fullness this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. If you've got your Bibles with you, we're going to rattle through lots of scriptures this morning. Um, If you've got a notebook, please note them down. They'll be on the screen behind me. So my first point is that when you're thinking about worship, we are all worshippers. Regardless of religious belief, regardless of your background, whether you are here and you love Jesus, whether you're here as a guest, whether you are against any form of any kind of spiritual belief, we are all worshippers of something or someone. It's in our God-given DNA. From the beginning in the Bible, it says that God created us in the image of God. It says in Genesis, let us make man in our image. Male and female, he created them. God made us in the image of God. Together as men and women, we are representations of God on earth. There is something about us that reflects God. And this whole series that Steve and Jonathan and Rob and John and others have been unpacking is looking at how are we reflectors of the living God. He is a God who is one, but as we found out a couple of weeks ago, he is also a God who is three. He is the Trinity, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Within the Trinity, there's relationship. Within the Trinity, there is love. Within the the relationship in the Trinity, there is worship. And if we are created in God's image, we reflect that as well. Therefore, we were created to love. We were created for relationship. We were created for worship. In fact, let me go further than that. We weren't created for worship. We were created as worshippers. We were created worshipping. Worship is not merely an aspect of our being, but it's the essence of our being as God's image bearers. As a result of that, all of our lives, whether believer or non-believer, is ceaseless worship. Just by default, we naturally pour out our time, our energy, our talent, our money into something or someone. However, the Bible has also got a word for things that can be worshipped that aren't the living God. The word is idolatry. Seeking meaning, life, hope, 
identity in anything other than God himself is idolatry. So the question this morning is not, will you worship, but is, what are you or who are you worshipping? Idols go a long way beyond what we may initially think. As I said earlier, we might imagine gods of carved stone or wood, but actually they can be things that God has created which are really good. Things like family, things like friendships, God's created them. But if we elevate them above the number one position that God should have in our lives, then we elevate them to a kind of a godlike status. In the book of Romans, it says this, that because of the fall, because man turned his back on God, actually that relationship of God with God was changed and men swapped worshipping of God for other things. It says this, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. So by nature, we are worshippers. And in fact, the 16th century theologian John Calvin actually goes further than that. He actually says that the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. I quite like that picture that actually our hearts, just by default, find things that we go, oh, wow, that's amazing. And if we're not careful, we can elevate those things and make them into idols. So what happens when we put things in the place the rightful place that God should have in our lives. Well, I'm going to flick up a a fairly lengthy quote by the Bible teacher, Tim Keller. And um, actually, as I was doing my research, I thought, let's have pictures of the people who give these quotes. Because I often think, wow, I wonder how old that guy is. I wonder what she looks like. So there's Tim Keller. Slightly looks like he's peeping out from behind the words. Sorry about that. He says this, If anything threatens your identity, you will not just be anxious, but paralyzed with fear. If you lose your identity through the failings of someone else, you will not just be resentful, but locked into bitterness. If you lose it through your own failings, you will hate or despise yourself as a failure as long as you live. Only if your identity is built on God and his love can you have a self that can venture anything, face anything. An identity not based on God also leads inevitably to deep forms of addiction. When we turn good things into ultimate things, we are, as it were, spiritually addicted. If we take our meaning in them, from, in life, from our family, our work, our cause, or some achievement other than God, they enslave us. We have to have them. So work, family, leisure, friendships can all become idols if we're not careful. I was, I've told this story before, but a while ago I, was, I went to watch West Ham play. I've unfortunately married into a West Ham kind of family through Kate. Um, so sometimes, um, you know, we, we kind of watch the games. But I was in a pub toilet halfway through a West Ham game. And um, was uh, in, in the loo, as you are as a gent. And next to me was this very animated guy who started chatting to me. And he started chatting to me all about how devoted he was to West Ham. So he was telling me about this season ticket he's had, but he goes to the away games as well. He tells me he's always followed West Ham. Like he's got, you know, he's like hardcore West Ham. Um, he's got, he, you know, he has his seat at the stadium, as it was then. Um, and at the end of it, we were just washing our hands. And then he, to prove his, how devoted he was, he peeled off his shirt to me 
And he had, basically, it was on his back, had the, the massive kind of West Ham badge tattooed right, you know, the kind of the big castle and the crossed hammers, just to prove, show how devoted he was to his cause. So, in a way, he had elevated a good thing, football, arguably, um, to a God thing. He had taken his status, his identity, his hope, how hammers did, kind of affected his mood, and he'd elevated it to a God thing. So if we place things, even good things, above the rightful place that God has in our lives, then they actually, and worship them as God, they can begin to change us. And actually this morning, we've already thought uh, during the worship time that actually, as we come into Jesus' presence, we get changed to become more and more like him. We're being transformed as worshippers of the living God. However, if we put other things in his place, we become changed by those things as well. We become what we worship. So what do I mean by worship then? Well, if you're a Christian here, you go to Jesus for hope, salvation, security. You know that you're loved. We rest as Christians in all that Christ has done for us. We don't need to strive. We know that our future is secure and that our past has been dealt with on the cross. We do not have to work for acceptance or points in God's eyes. But what if we exchange all that we have in Jesus for something else. For example, let's just take something like work, because actually that's personally a bit of a danger for me sometimes. If we elevate work above God, it becomes our source of identity and hope. We go to it, not just as a God-given part of life, which is a good thing, but actually we go to it to, to get meaning, identity, and status. Doing well at work becomes of paramount importance to us. Others' opinions of us at work count for more than what Jesus says about us. Our future is not only defined in, in our minds in terms of what God thinks about us, but actually it's, how's my career going? I should be, I'm, I'm now 30, I'm now 40. This is the point I should be in my career. We don't rest on what Jesus has done for us, but we strive to earn points at work. We become defined by who we are at work. You might know someone who is quite happy to be called a bit of a workaholic because actually for them, working hard equals I'm doing really well. Let's go back to Tim Keller for another quote. He says this, Remember this, if you don't live for Jesus, you'll live for something else. If you live for career and you don't do well, it may punish you all your life and you'll feel like a failure. If you live for your children and they don't turn out all right, you could be absolutely in torment because you feel worthless as a person. If Jesus is your center and Lord and you fail him, he'll forgive you. Your career didn't die for your sins. You might say, if, I'm, if I become a Christian, I'd be going around pursued by guilt all the time. But we're all being pursued by guilt because we must have an identity and there must be some standard to live up to by which we get that identity. Whatever you base your life on, you have to live up to that. Jesus is the one Lord you can live for who has died for you. One who has breathed his last for you. Does that sound oppressive? God the Father has already done everything for us by sending his beloved son Jesus to take our sins upon him, to die in our place. He's paid the punishment that was on our head. If you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior here, you, you will have received forgiveness. And it's like he says of each one of us. It's like Jesus says, John already matches up to my standards. He doesn't need to do anything else. It's a bit like that. We've also been filled by the wonderful Holy Spirit who empowers us and equips us to do life. 
Even though we'll make mistakes, as Tim Keller says, we, know, we can know ongoing forgiveness and grace. Hallelujah. So, an idol factory, well, hopefully, I feel as Christians, actually, are, it's not as much that our hearts make things into idols, but that we can easily get just seduced and just get our eyes a little bit off the game. Now, I've got a little bit of a danger here, and um, I want to kind of share a couple of things. Um, but fortunately, we have God's Holy Spirit, don't we, to convict us when our hearts are starting to wander. So James, in the book of James, one of my favorite books in the Bible, he says this, keep yourself from idols. So he obviously thought, well, Christians have got a tendency to do this. Um, And my go-to idol, unfortunately, to my shame, is stuff. Okay, I love stuff. And if I'm not careful, stuff can give me my identity, whether that is the brand of clothes that I wear, whether that is, for example, my bike. Okay, I love cycling. It's a God-given sport. I mean, when whoever God inspired to create the bicycle, just that was, that was a real kind of God moment right there. But here's an example, okay, of a, a piece of bicycle equipment that I bought recently. Okay, let's have the next slide, read. This is... Um, this is a hub from a back wheel, okay? I've got a mountain bike with lots of gears, and I thought, I want to convert it to a single-speed bike, okay? And I've got, I haven't got um, kind of horizontal dropouts. I've got um, vertical dropouts, which means that if you only have one gear, you, you can't make the chain tight enough without having exactly the right amount of links or having some kind of tensioner on your chain. Or you could spend a lot of money on a rear hub that has a slightly offset axle so that then when you put the chain round with a spanner, you can pull the hub backwards a little bit and tighten the chain. Okay? And this is machined from one piece of aluminium, okay, it's beautifully made, okay, and, and I laced this onto a hub, uh, on, onto, a, on, onto a rim, and my back wheel now looks amazing on my bike, okay, um, does it define me, well, actually, I'm still the same old Jim after having bought that rear hub for my bike, okay, I'm, it, it does look amazing, but if, if my identity, if I can easily start to go, oh, do you know what, I'm a really good cyclist if I buy that bit, okay, I'm not content with just kind of some cruddy little bike, um, even though that would be more than good enough. Okay, so I get seduced. Here's um, another example. Okay, when Kate and I first got married, um, we purchased some kitchen knives. Okay, and I didn't want any old sets, you know, because why would you just go for any old knife? You, you want to have a really good knife. So I, but we bought a set of global kitchen knives. Um, but unfortunately, my lovely wife, who cooks, um, was getting some fridge cake out of um, out of a. A tray? Who's had a bit of my wife's fridge cake, by the way? Who loves... Yeah, it's amazing. However, she was digging this really expensive knife into the tin and snapped the end of the knife off, okay? And I was cross because my idol had been broken, okay? The thing that I love... um, Actually, I love Kate more than these knives, I want to (laughs) say. I do love you, darling. Um... But I realized in that moment, why, why am I getting really cross about this? Okay, it's just a knife, isn't it? It's just a knife. However, I can easily get seduced by it. Now, you all have different things, okay? Yours might be relationships. Yours might be having the right status online. Yours might be having met up with friends, and if you don't do that, you feel a bit of a loser. Whatever things that we get pulled into that we start to feel define us, that's where, as Christians, we've got to be a bit careful. Under the surface, our idols can sit quite happily, and often it's not until they're taken away that they start to kick off. So, I just want you to just pause for a little minute at the end of this first point. I just want you to think, okay, if you're, if you're not a Christian today, okay, if you come into this place and you wouldn't say that you follow Jesus, I just want you to think, what are you basing your life on? What are the things in your life that give you hope, meaning, identity? If you are a Christian here, Are there things that seduce and 
kind of get you off kilter from running wholeheartedly after Jesus. Just close your eyes and I just want to lead you in prayer. Even now, Lord, would you just place on our hearts things that we have run after other than you? Lord, we want to come before you and just lay these things down. Lord, we want to say that you are the one we love. You are the number one in our lives. Lord, would you forgive us? We thank you that there's always grace and forgiveness when we come before your cross. Lord, we just lay these things aside this morning and we want to say to you, you are the one we love. Amen. Right, let's crack on. Let's go to on the second point. Whom do we worship? Okay, so we've talked a bit generally about what worship is, what worship can be. Let's now narrow down a little bit to looking at the God of the Bible. Who is the one that we worship? Now, worship, the Bible says, is going on all around us all the time. And this morning, actually, in one of the songs we sang about all creation is shouting out your praise. Okay, in the, in the Bible, um, in Psalm 19.1, it says this, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. Can you whack that one up, Ree? Thank you. Now, I don't know how many of you are watching Planet Earth at the moment, but I can't fail to watch Planet Earth and be absolutely amazed at how God has created uh, such a beautiful creation. And we've got a picture up here of just um, from planet Earth. Um, and just there's been some amazing photography, hasn't there, looking at the wonderful world God has made. And obviously David Attenborough comes to a different conclusion, um, and he wouldn't say that there is any purpose behind design. But I, I'm sure for many of you who love Jesus, you can't fail to worship God for the complexity and the beauty of his creation. Jesus actually confirms this. He's talking to the Pharisees in the Gospel of Luke, and the Pharisees um, rebuke his disciples. And if you can put this up, Re, it says this, When he, i.e. Jesus, came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began, began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they'd seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. So all creation is praising the living God. The Bible tells this amazing story of God throughout the, throughout the Bible. He's been worshipped by men and women from the beginning. At the very start of the Bible, there was a perfect relationship with God. Worship was just something that naturally Adam and Eve could do. They could meet face to face with God. They could talk with him. There was no separation. Once sin came in, once man chose the wrong choice, then that beautiful close relationship was spoilt. But all the time we see through the Old Testament, God again and again has provided ways for people to come close to him. He met with individuals. He met with his people, Israel, throughout the Old Testament as they worshipped. Even with a broken relationship with God, worship would happen People could go to the temple. They could bring a sacrifice to atone for their sins. And in that moment, they could be made right with God again and draw a little bit closer to God. But ultimately, it was only temporarily. God also spoke to prophets like Isaiah. He filled and equipped the leaders of his people like Moses and Abraham. All through the Old Testament, we are given glimpses of God's heart to draw near to men and women his love for his creation, and his hatred of what separates us from him. 
And ultimately, we get little glimpses of what Jesus would do one day on the cross for us to break that barrier once and for all, that barrier of sin and death, that separation between us and God. Here's a scripture from the book of Hebrews. It says, talks about the people who were looking forward to what was going to happen. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. Or maybe the tings, actually. Maybe it says on my sheet here. <laughs> Sorry about that. And another scripture here as another one. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets in many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Jesus is exactly what the father is like. God has made himself known. This is the God that we worship. The laws, the sacrifice system, and the prophets all pointed the way to Jesus, who made himself known and revealed what God is like. Here's another scripture from 1 John. He writes, That which was from the beginning, Jesus was there at the very beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. So John actually physically saw Jesus, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The series Reflections of Splendor is partly to remind us that actually we can see God all around us through each other. Another scripture from Romans is written here. But, but now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known. So it's talking about Jesus, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. We're so privileged, aren't we? Since Jesus came and revealed himself, we have a tangible glimpse of God in all his glory. We can worship God in his fullness. We can draw close permanently. Let's go on to our next point. So if that's what Christian worship is like, well, why do we worship? It might come as a surprise to some of you, but actually God doesn't need our worship. God doesn't need our worship. He's not like a charity that needs to be supported or sustained or a YouTube channel that needs to be subscribed to. God doesn't need our worship. The Apostle Paul says in Acts, he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. In fact, everything that we bring to God in worship, actually he's already given us in the first place. It says in Romans, who has ever given to God that God should repay him? God is no man's debtor. However, there's an amazing flip side to this truth. God doesn't need our worship, but do you know what? He loves our worship. God delights in our worship. He loves our heartfelt honest offerings that we bring before him. We worship because we love God. We worship because we don't fully understand God. Some of you might have found your your heads being stretched as Steve's unpacked the Trinity, as others have explored, how can God be one and three at the same time? We worship partly because we don't, our heads can't comprehend, comprehend how massive and how awesome God is. We worship not because we're told to, but because we can as God's children. Worship that glorifies God and puts him in our rightful place. 
pleases God. When I first came to this church, I remember one of my first meetings was with Reg Hall, who used to be an elder here before he went to be with Jesus. And one of the first things, we were just talking about relationships with God, and he said to me, Jim, Jesus is either Lord of all or not at all. And that sort of phrase just kind of stuck with me. Yeah, Jesus is. He's either Lord of all or not at all. Do we put him in his rightful place? God needs to be first in your life or he's not your Lord. More than this, the glory of God is supremely important. For God to be God, he must prize his glory above all else. I remember having these sorts of conversations when I first became a Christian, and I remember my brother saying to me, he's just on some kind of massive ego trip, this God of yours. Just kind of, he always wants, like, oh, look at me, look at me. And I remember... I was only just a Christian, so I couldn't really answer and really talk about how awesome and how amazing God is and that he deserves worship. But I remember thinking, well, how do I, how do I kind of put it in the right way? Because it can sound a bit odd. What, God wants his glory above everything else. Well, let's listen to this quote. This is by a guy called J.I. Packer. Okay? And he says this, If it is right for man to have the glory of God as his goal, can it be wrong for God to have the same goal? If man can have no higher purpose than God's glory, how can God? The reason it cannot be right for man to live for himself as if he were God is because he's not God. However, it cannot be right for God to seek his own glory simply because he is God. In the book of Isaiah, God says this, I will not yield my glory to another. Do you have the glory of God as your goal in life? If thinking about why worship, as Christians define it, well, it's, it's more than just music and singing, isn't it? The term worship should be applied to every aspect of our lives. Everything in our lives can become acts of worship. In the book of Romans, it says this, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Therefore, if we're offering our lives as those acts of worship, our work can be worship. Our friendships can be worship. Our leisure time, our money can be used for worship. Our internet use can be used for worship. Worship is ultimately a heart attitude. It's about the orientation of the whole of our lives lived in adoration of the Lord God. Worship is as much about what we do at home or at work as what we do on a Sunday morning. When I was trying to think about this, I was thinking of an illustration for this. And um, Kate had been shopping, and I got her to buy her favorites, one of her favorite go-tos at the bakery, which is Belgian buns. Okay, and um, if you if you love a good Belgian bun, you know there's a lot of bun and just like a tiny cherry on the top. And um, I was thinking about this. It's a little bit like our lives. Our lives, our Sunday morning worship, should be just like just the cherry on the top of that bun. Okay? If the only time you worship Jesus, if the only time you're going, I want my life to live for you, God, is that much of your life, then what is the rest of your life based on? Actually, our lives, worship, the bun, should be going on through the week, worshipping God. And actually, when we come together corporately, Maybe that's a little bit like the cherry, isn't it? That's like the icing on the cake. Actually, we run into God's presence corporately, excited to be in his presence, because that's based on having known him through the week. Not just shuffling into church, going, oh, I've had a, I haven't even thought about you, God. Now I've got to sing some songs, and I feel really fake singing these words. But no, actually, 
coming together as Christians should be the icing on the top of living for God in the week. Okay, you can have those later, darling, okay? So, saying that, the corporate worship of Christians is intended to be a clear expression of the adoration of Christ that permeates the rest of our lives. D.A. Carson says this, We cannot imagine that the church gathers for worship on a Sunday morning if by this we mean that we then engage in something that we have not been engaging in the rest of the week. New covenant worship terminology prescribes constant worship. Mark Driscoll often used to talk about we worship gathered, but we also worship scattered as well, that actually we worship God corporately and individually. Matt Redman expresses this heart attitude in a simple song that he wrote at a time in church life where um, they kind of got to a point where he and Mike Pilavachi were feeling like they were just going through the motions in worship and just singing songs without any, any kind of heart behind it. And actually what they did, if you know the story, is they stripped back everything. And they actually just they did, took the PA away, they took the worship band away, and they just spent time with God and then waited for just that heart of worship to bubble up again. I mean, you, just, just some of those words. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. Let's join in. And it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. When it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. I love that line. I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within through the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. When we meet together, the primary reason we get together as Christians is that corporately we might worship him. We might pray, we might sing, we might praise him. Edmund Clowney comments, Reverent corporate worship is not optional for the church of God. Rather, it brings to expression the very being of the church. It manifests on earth the reality of the heavenly assembly. This delight in God that we experience corporately is like a foretaste of what is going on already in heaven. Even as I speak, there is ceaseless, ongoing worship around the throne of God. In the book of Revelation, in Revelation 5.12, the people sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Worshipping, therefore, together is an expression of our ultimate purpose in living for God. Some of you might know some of the questions from the Westminster Catechism. But one of the questions is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So my challenge to you is, do you enjoy God? Sam Albury in his book Connected challenges us. He says, does God sometimes get too small in your eyes? Sometimes so small that you almost think you're doing God a favor by worshiping him. Have you got God out of perspective? Do you even get a bit bored sometimes during the sung worship times in church? Coming to church keeps things in perspective. Meeting together is crucially important to us as believers. I was really challenged by a couple of quotes from A.W. Tozer. He says, left to ourselves, we immediately tend to reduce God to manageable terms. It's almost like if we don't keep coming together, if we don't keep reading our Bibles, we can start to diminish God. In the book of Hebrews, 
It says this, and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Have you got friends who you you've not seen at church for a while? Why not get alongside them and encourage them to come and worship Jesus alongside you again? We need to be meeting together to worship him on a regular basis. We're going to be doing an awful lot of that in heaven. A.W. Tozer, again, another challenging quote. He says, any man or woman on earth who is bored or turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. Eugene Peterson, again, writer of the message version of the Bible, says, worship does not satisfy our hunger for God. It whets our appetite. Are you hungry for more of God? Do you enjoy him? Do you worship him at home and at work throughout the week? On your commute? What music do you play at home? What music have you got on your phone? Do you have Christian worship on your phone that you go to? I love music. I love playing music. I even do a bit of DJing, even though I'm kind of just pushed 40. Although Pete Tong is in his 50s and he's still a legend. But ultimately, these songs are all man-centered things. Getting before God, singing songs that are directed to the throne of God is something totally different. So let's consider, how do we worship God fully? How do we worship him in all his fullness? Well, I've got some practical considerations that I just really want to challenge you with. They certainly challenged me as I was preparing. If we reflect God as we worship, we therefore need to sing about God in all his fullness. Okay? We need to study the Bible to learn what God is like. This series, if you haven't caught all the preachers in this series, please go online and look back and listen. Steve and others have really tried, you know, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to start to unpack what, what, is, what is our Trinitarian God like. When we start to get a wider glimpse of God, that influences the way that we worship. In order to understand better God, we need to go to those passages in Scripture which mention God in all his fullness. Okay? The passage in Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, I'm not going to read it out now, but it talks about Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and all that God has done for us. If you're not reading, I want to challenge you, give you a bit of homework. If you're not doing an Advent series at the moment in preparation for Christmas, if you're not locked into kind of like a regular Bible study that you like, I can't crack out of that. If, you know, if tomorrow morning when you wake up, you're kind of going, Lord, what do I study? Look at this passage, okay? Get into it. Ponder on it this week. Look, at, look for the Trinity in that passage. Dig into all that God has done for us. Truth like this has an implication on what we sing. The important of the importance of the content in our worship songs. So does our corporate, our challenge to us, is does our corporate worship, as well as our individual worship, reflect God in all his fullness? We're blessed with some amazing men and women who lead us into the presence of God. Let's be thinking as we gather, does this reflect God in all his fullness? That's a challenge to me. That's a challenge to Steve, John, James, Lydia, Ellen, everyone. Does this reflect God in all his splendor and his fullness? When I was thinking about this, I was thinking about my son, because he's going to have lunch in a minute. And I thought what I would do is rather than give him um, roast dinner, I I thought I would give Louis, Louis, would you like some wafer-thin mints for your lunch? Come, come, come and get this. This is your lunch, okay? Okay. If you love a good wafer-thin mint, there you go. It's got lovely, lovely mint inside. That's your lunch, okay? We're going to have roast. 
you can have that, all right, darling? Okay, rather random, but I was thinking about worship songs that say, I love you, I'm going to do this for you, I'm like this before you, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's great singing heartfelt response to Jesus, but if that is all we sing about God, it's a little bit like Louis eating those wafer-thin mints as a Christian, okay? It's not steak, it's not roast dinner. If our worship is all, I love you, I love you, Lord, I love you, I'm going to do this for you, that's all good, but that's like... That's, that's like a slice of it, isn't it? If we're not expressing what God has done for us through the Father, the Son, who he is in the Holy Spirit, his plans for our lives, all those, the God in his fullness, it's like we're just snacking on wafer-thin mints and not enjoying the fullness of what God has got for us. Matt Redmond says this, Worship songs can't be rooted just in culture. They won't be deep enough. They have to be rooted in Scripture. Some people say, oh, I love the worship songs where you can't really tell whether you're singing about Jesus or your girlfriend, okay? And, like, maybe they're okay sometimes. Or, oh, I really love poetic things. And that's great because God loves creativity, doesn't he? I was an art student. I love creative stuff. But actually, if we're not singing truths, if we're not singing, you know, in Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God, and helpless babe, if we're not singing the truth of God in our lives, we're on a kind of a, a snack diet, aren't we? We're not singing about God in all his fullness. In his book, Worshipping Trinity, Robin Parry um, talks about the Trinity. And I, I would suggest, if you want to carry on studying about the Trinity and think about how does the Trinity impact my life as a believer, get hold of that book. It's fantastic. He writes it slightly from a worship perspective, but then looks at the Trinity and the fullness of our lives. Another really accessible book is The Unquenchable Worshipper by Matt Redman that talks about the heart that worshippers have for God. Robin Parry says this in his book, Worshipping Trinity. Our spirituality is usually shaped more by the experience of communal worship than it is by preaching and teaching. Now, I don't want to do Stephen John a disservice, okay? We sit under the word of God, don't we, when we... But actually, often, in tough times, Scripture can come back if we've got a good habit of reading the Bible. But what also comes back, it's words from songs, isn't it? Oh no, you'll never let go through the calm and through the storm. Or when all beneath me falls away, I know that you are God. How good it is to be loved for you. We we sing those songs, don't we? The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. He makes me lie in pastures green. And scripture comes back to us in those tough times, doesn't it? Okay? So actually, there's a challenge really to John and James and other guys that lead us in worship. They are kind of like the theologians of the church in many ways. Those songs permeate us deep down, don't they? In those tough times, those are the lyrics that often come back as well as the scripture. So are we singing songs that are full of the Bible? Do we have a limited view of God in worship? Robin Parry says again this, good theology matters for good worship. The public worship we experience often sets the limits and possibilities of our worshipping worlds. Do you have a limited view of God? Having a full, biblically accurate picture of God enables us to worship in all contexts, in all seasons, and through all emotions. The book of Psalms has been called worship in the presence and absence of God. Matt Redman writes in his book that about 70% of Psalms are actually laments. And a true lament never questions the worth of God Instead, it knows his goodness and his greatness as the only hope in bleak situations. Here's a verse from Habakkuk where the Bible echoes this. Through, sorry, Though the fig tree does not bud 
and there are no grapes on the vines. Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no fruit, there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. It's a good verse, isn't it? Let's, let's contextualise it for us. Can we say this? Though I have been made redundant and I'm facing uncertainty, though I didn't get the grades I needed to get into my choice of uni, though I'm on my own, though I've not been able to have children, though my family is a mess and there don't seem to be any signs of this changing, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Saviour. Reed, can you just flick up the, the next slide? Does anyone know who this lovely lady is? Fanny Crosby. Okay, Fanny Crosby. Okay, she was a 19th century American hymn writer. Okay, and um, I was really challenged by a story about Fanny Crosby. I'm, I'm just going to read this verbatim from, from Matt Redman's book, Unquenchable Worshipper. He says this. Fanny Crosby told the story of a life-changing incident that happened to her. When about six weeks old, I was taken sick, and my eyes grew very weak, and those who had charge of me poulticed my eyes. Their lack of knowledge and skill destroyed my sight forever. As I grew older, they told me I should never see the faces of my friends, the flowers of the field, the blue of the skies, or the golden beauty of the stars. Soon, I learned what other children possessed, but I made up my mind to store away a little jewel in my heart, which I called content. In fact, Fanny Crosby was only eight when she wrote this song. Can you put the next slide on, Ree? Oh, what a happy soul am I, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world, contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. This contented worshipper went on to write around 8,000 hymns of praise, including to God be the glory and blessed assurance. The fire that burned in her heart for Jesus simply could not be put out. Someone once asked her, Fanny, do you wish you'd not been blinded? She replied in typical style, well, the good thing about being blind is the very first face I'll see will be the face of Jesus. Do you worship God in all his fullness? Do you only worship God in good times? Have you worshipped God in pain and suffering and known him still to be good? And finally, because I know I've overrun my time, Steve. Last point, how should we worship in response? The great thing is that worship isn't restricted. It's not restricted to a specific location. We can worship Jesus at home as well as Hope Church. There aren't set words we need to say. Worship is more than a certain style of music. Jesus says that we should worship in spirit and in truth. It says in the book of John, Jesus says this, Yet a time is coming and has now come where the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kinds of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. How we worship at Hope Church isn't the way, it's a way. What matters is that we worship God not as we wish, but as he wishes. Matt Redmond talks about the difference in churches between worship leaders and lead worshippers. And I I thought it was just a thing of semantics initially, but then when I thought about it, actually it makes real sense. John, 
who's led us this morning in worship. Actually, if we see John as the lead worshipper, actually, that reminds us that the Holy Spirit is ultimately the worship leader, isn't he? The Holy Spirit is the one that leads us into the Father's presence. John is just the first person to run into God's presence, and hopefully, God willing, not hopefully, (laughs) um, we will be running after him into, into the presence of Jesus. Isn't, that's releasing for John, because it means that John can't make us worship. The Holy Spirit leads us into worship. Okay? The Holy Spirit is the great orchestrator of worship. John can't make you worship. He can't hype us up to worship. Worship is a spiritual thing. We always worship by the Spirit of God. That also means that not all worship needs to originate from the stage. And actually, my challenge to us as a church is actually corporately... Whilst we're there in our seats, are we thinking, Lord, do you want me to be involved in our corporate time of worship? Have you got a verse of scripture that you've put on my heart that you want me to bring? What am I bringing into the house of the Lord this morning to share? Have I got a testimony like Kirsty? Have I got a, a scripture or a prayer like Ange? Okay, let's, let's encourage one another in God. John isn't responsible for our worship. Okay, we are responsible for getting before God, led by the Holy Spirit. So don't be passive. You've all got a part to play. So just to finish, just got some questions. I just want you to meditate on these and then we're going to worship with one song that's on a YouTube clip at the end. We're going to stand and worship God in all his fullness. What's your identity built on? God or something else? Do you need to get right with God in some areas of your lives? Do you have the glory of God as your goal in life? Do you enjoy him? Do you hunger for more of him? Has he become too small in your eyes? Do you worship God throughout your week? What are you eating spiritually? Steak or wafer-thin mints? Can you worship God in all seasons? Let's stand before him. I'm just going to pray and then Clive's just going to Put a song up for us. The words will be on. And Ree, in fact, Ree's going to do it. Thank you, Ree. Father God, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, mighty God, three in one, we come before you as your people, redeemed by the blood of Jesus, loved by the Father, filled by the Holy Spirit. Lord, we want to be a people that worship you in spirit and in truth. We want to be unquenchable unquenchable worshippers of the living God.